So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. Um, this is a psalm that's written by King David. If you have one of our Bibles from uh, one of the tables in the back, it's on page 480. Psalm chapter 19. Okay, last week, if you were here, we finished up John's Gospel. We had started that uh, last September and worked our way through that over the course of uh, several months. And now, um, uh, this fall, coming up in the end of September, first part of October, we will be starting the book of Revelation. Okay, so we're going to go. We have John's voice, if you will, from his Gospel. And, And so I want you to keep that in mind as we prepare for John's voice in Revelation, but really, ultimately, it's God's voice in Revelation. It's God's voice in John's gospel, right? Because it's God's word. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning uh, as we dig into God's word. Uh, the time between now and then, though, this summer, we're going to focus on, um, on uh, our values here at Redeemer. We're going to go through a series and discuss these together, okay? Things that we hold as vitally important to the life and ministry of this church in particular. You'll find those values listed on the handout that you got this morning. If you didn't get one, there are some back at the round table there. Um, and that handout has our, our vision, our mission. It has our, our primary, like the foundational verses of Redeemer, which is uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14, okay? Excuse me, but then it has this list of values that we uh, that, that we, um, we hold as important here, vitally important to the life and ministry of the church. Now, you can go on any church's website, you can look at their values, and their, their list can be a mile long or it can be three words long, okay? This is not meant to be an, an all-encompassing, like, catch-all, uh, an exhaustive list. Um, so that, that doesn't mean that if you don't see something on there, it's not important to us. But what, what this is, it's a list of values that, that, that we want to give particular emphasis to here at Redeemer as we grow together in dependence upon Jesus, in confidence in Christ, which is the vision, right, that we're broken people being gracefully remade into his image as we grow together uh, in, his, uh, in greater dependence upon him and greater confidence in him. And as we carry out the mission of this church, which is to uh, bring glory to Jesus, our Redeemer, as we help each other connect the realities of the gospel with the realities of our lives. So these are those areas that we want to focus on or give particular emphasis to as we do that. Um, Each of these values is derived from and driven by God's word. And in fact, um, you'll see if you're looking at that page, the first value on there is God's word, okay? It is God's word. God's word is foundational to every value on this list because it's foundational to every aspect of life and ministry here at Redeemer uh, and and Christ's church, universal church as a whole. So we're going to spend not just this week, but this week and next week on this first value, sort of a two-part mini-series, if you will. Okay, This week we're going to look at Psalm 19, and through Psalm 19, King David is going to show us the necessity of God's word. And then next week, we'll look at parts of 2 Timothy 3 and 4, and the Apostle Paul is going to show us uh, that God's word is enough, okay? The sufficiency of God's word, if you will. Now, you've heard me say before that we come to hear the word and not the preacher, right? This morning, Psalm 19, uh, my prayer is that that will help us understand why that is true for us. And so I want to pray, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig in together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. 
O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever wondered how much a cloud weighs? Anybody? Nobody sits and thinks about these things? I know somebody in this room does. We've talked about it before. Um, it's just a conversation we've had, okay? Um, well, I, I'm here to tell you uh, that I have the answer to that for all of those of you that have been coming in with this question burning on your mind and heart this morning, okay? The average white fluffy cloud weighs 1.1 million pounds. 1.1 million pounds, okay? To put that into perspective, that would be like having five blue whales, okay? Or 200 African elephants hovering over your head. Okay, you with me here? Now, we've had some pretty good thunderstorms over the last few days, right? If you thought the average cloud was heavy, uh, it would take a pod of 5,000 blue whales or a herd of 200,000 African elephants to equal the weight of one towering thunderstorm cloud. Between Thursday and Saturday at our house, we got over two inches of rain. And, and, and that was like not, not all Thursday, all Friday, all Saturday. That was like a couple hours on Thursday and a couple hours on Saturday. A lot of water. It's heavy, right? So if, if the clouds weigh this much, then, then how do they stay up in the air, right? Why don't we have to worry about walking outside and not just be like, is it raining, but is the sky falling? Like, uh, why are we not Chicken Little running around all the time, right? Job 26.8. You ever heard this verse? He wraps the water in his clouds, and yet the clouds do not burst beneath its weight. He wraps the water in his clouds, and yet the clouds do not burst in, uh, beneath its weight. But who is this he that's being talked about here, right? Who is it that wraps up the water in the clouds? It's God, right? But how do you know that? Because the Bible tells me so, right? We just, we, we just heard this in Job 26, 8. Now here in Psalm 19, King David is going to tell us about the God who holds these clouds in the sky. He's going to show us that the skies themselves reveal something to us about this God, but the skies themselves can only reveal so much. And so here's, here's our main point today, okay? Here's the thing we need to take away from all of this. If we really want to know God then we really need God's word. This is the necessity of God's word. If we really want to know God, then we really need God's word. We're gonna look at this psalm in three parts this morning. One, the general revelation of creation. Two, the specific revelation of scripture. And three, the necessary response of humanity. The general revelation of, of creation, the, the specific revelation of, of scripture, and the necessary response of humanity. Let's look at the general Revelation of creation, verse 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now, we could think of, uh, of this in terms of, of two things, okay, as we sort of keep this in mind. The heavens declare the Lord's glory visually. God's word declares the Lord's glory verbally. 
okay? So visually, the heavens declare the Lord, the glory of God visually. They speak to the existence of a creator, but they do so, as David says here, without words. There is no speech involved. And yet, the visual display of the heavens is a universal language. It goes out to all. The entire earth shares the same sky. No matter where you are on this planet, you can look up and you can be amazed at what you see, right? The clouds, the stars, the planets all have a way of making us realize and understand that there is something greater than us, making us feel small. But it's not just a something, it's a someone, right? Now, when we look up, we can see evidence of divine design and attributes of the divine designer. We can see proof of his power and his wisdom through the vastness and order of the cosmos. And it's not just the heavens that declare his glory that way. It's all of creation that speaks to God's glory this way. All of creation speaks without words to the reality of a creator. Now, it's interesting here to note that the Hebrew word that David uses for God in verse 1 is this Hebrew word El, E-L, okay? And it's the least specific word in Hebrew for God. El, just generically God, okay? By using this word El, David is saying that, that at least in a general way, all of creation points to a creator, and there's no one on earth who can deny that claim according to verse 4, why? Because the message has gone out to the ends of the earth, right? The whole world has seen this. In other words, we can't say that we never knew God existed because he's already proven his existence through his creation. The moment you go outside and look up, listen with your ears, see, taste, touch, smell, evidence of a creator. The Apostle Paul mentions this in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, talking about mankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation points to a creator, right? Paul says, so they are without excuse. Mankind is without excuse, in fact, Scripture tells us that anyone who argues against the existence of God is foolish and that we have all been fools. Listen to Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Here's the answer. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who is good, not even one, not even one. We're all without excuse. There are three Hebrew words for the word fool, and all three define a moral position rather than an intellectual ability, okay? It's not for lack of understanding. It's actually for um, uh, the the the. It's a denial, right? The Hebrew term used for, for the word fool here in Psalm 14.1 refers to someone who stubbornly rejects wisdom, not to someone who has the inability to understand. Listen to what Paul says a couple verses later in Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's foolish to know that there is a God and not pursue a greater understanding of who he is. This is what scripture tells us. Because we're all born with a sinful nature, no one is good, not even one, right? We've all stubbornly rejected this wisdom that God has so clearly displayed in his creation to us. We can't claim ignorance because the message that, has, uh, that the heavens declare the glory of God has been uh, sent out to the entire earth, to the ends of the world. There's nowhere on this planet where the existence of God has not been clearly shown through creation. This is what David tells us in Psalm 19 here. And so our only two options are to get to know this God on a deeper level or to keep pretending like he doesn't exist and we don't need him. When we act like there isn't an all-powerful and all-wise God, we dishonor this God. We discredit the one whom the heavens glorify. Think about that for a minute. And we darken our own hearts to the truth of who he is. And then we elevate lesser things above the one who has no equal. No equal. Created things are designed to reveal the creator. They're never designed to surpass him. The son is an example of this. And David describes it in these next verses. Look at second part of verse 4 through 6. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Now, if you thought clouds were cool, maybe you don't. I think they're cool. Um, Here are a few facts about the sun that I also think are fascinating. The sun's surface is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature at the core, which I'm not sure like where they got the thermometer for this, but um, the temperature at the core, the very middle of the sun, are you ready for this? 27 million degrees. 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, okay? To put that into perspective, it would just melt the flesh off of all of those elephants. Just... uh, That wasn't in my notes. I shouldn't have said that. Um, But to put that into perspective, for the past several weeks, right, the southern U.S. has been in this unbearable heat wave. Temperatures soaring into the hundreds, actual temperatures into the hundreds with heat indices of upwards of 120 degrees. That is actually killing people. Think about that for a minute. Even though we're 93 million miles away from the sun, it's easy to see why nothing is hidden from its heat. Even David knew this, right? He didn't have that thermometer. He didn't know how hot the sun was. Around a million earths could fit inside the sun. It's 870,000 miles wide. It's incredible. Everything in our solar system revolves around the sun because of its gravitational pull, which means it's constantly drawing everything to itself and even though the sun is hot enough to just obliterate all of life somehow without the sun there would be no life right isn't it amazing how this sun reflects the power and divine nature of god god himself is the source of life of all life he's powerful enough to obliterate everything 
and yet without him there would be no life. He designed all of creation to act as a spiritual, gravitational pull, drawing all mankind to himself and revealing his existence. But we often fall short of recognizing that. And so what do we do? Instead of worshiping God because of his creation, we, we stop short and we end up worshiping creation itself. Now, re, now there, there are cultures that actually worship the sun because that's the most powerful thing they know of. And I'm pretty sure that none of us have shrines set up to the sun. But we're still prone to praise the glories of lesser things without acknowledging the creator of all things, right? The, the, um, the smoke, smoke, smoked meat outside smells pretty delicious, doesn't it? The perfect cup of coffee. You ever had one of those? Mm, it's good. Kevin and I were just talking about the fireworks last night. They're amazing, right? Thrill of an experience, new pair of shoes, smell of a flower, the grandeur of, of the mountains. We sang about that this morning. Melody of a song. Even the beauty or, of, of the sunrise and the sunset. We're in awe, Right? Now, it's not wrong to enjoy these things, but they are never meant to be the source of our joy. They're, we're never meant to stop at those things. They're meant to point us to the source, and yet these created things are unable to tell us all that we need to know about this creator. Creation points us to the existence of God, and creation reflects some of God's attributes to us, but it's an imperfect reflection. Why? Because what Scripture tells us is that creation itself has been subjected to futility. Creation itself has been corrupted by the, the nature and the curse of sin. It gives us an imperfect reflection of God, and so we cannot rely on creation alone to reveal God to us perfectly. In order to get a perfect reflection of a perfect God, we need to look at something perfect, right? And that leads us to the second part of this psalm, the specific revelation of Scripture. Look at verses 7 through 11. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They're more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them and in keeping them, there is abundant reward. Now I want to point out something here that would be easy for us to miss because we're reading this psalm in English. Earlier I mentioned in verse 1 that David used this word for God, this Hebrew word El, right? It's the most generic Hebrew word for God. But as soon as David switches from talking about creation to talking about the word, he calls God Lord. All caps in your Bible, L-O-R-D. This word in Hebrew, and he'll use this for the rest of the psalm, it's God's name. It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. It's, it's translated as Lord in our Bibles, in all caps. It's God's personal name. It comes from Exodus 3, 14 and 15. God replied to Moses. He said, I am who I am. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, aka Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my name forever. This is how I will be remembered. I am to be remembered in every generation. You see, it's only through the scriptures that we can go beyond knowing about God generically and actually know God personally, specifically. When David switches from El to Yahweh, he's implying a deeper relationship with God that can only be brought about by God's word. It's only through the Bible that we have access to the knowledge of the redeeming nature, the redeeming actions, the redeeming character of God in history, which crescendoed in Jesus's life and death and resurrection and ascension and will culminate, will bring to finality all things when he comes again to judge his enemies, to reward his people, and to make all things new. See, we have more to marvel at than just the S-U-N son, right? We have the S-O-N son. John showed us this in his gospel. While we can clearly perceive God's divine nature through the world around us, we can only clearly perceive God's redemptive nature through his son, Jesus Christ. And without scripture, we have no knowledge of Jesus. John Calvin said, the, the knowledge of God, which is clearly shown in the ordering of the world in, in all creatures, is still more clearly and familiarly, fam, familiar, you know what I'm trying to say, right? familiarly, ooh, my goodness, explained in the word. Thank, thank the Lord that he has the words and I don't. And we know from John the Apostle, whose gospel is part of God's written word, that Jesus is the living word, right? Who has explained, John 1.18, revealed, exegeted, shown us, explained, exposited the Father. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 13 through 17, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him if they've not believed in him? Uh, on him whom they have not believed in? And in, in how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written in God's word, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, but not all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? And so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Faith comes from hearing the message about Jesus Christ, and the message about Christ is the gospel. It's found only in the scriptures. The world reveals the existence of God, L, right? The word reveals the name of God, Yahweh. And this God that we must call on to be saved, Yahweh, Lord, I am, who used that name in John's gospel? Jesus Christ. It's not enough to just know that God exists. That's incredible in and of itself, but it's not enough. We need to know who he is. We need to know what he desires and what's, what that means for us. Maybe you're in here this morning and you've been wondering, what am I here for? What's the purpose of my life? The answer to that can't be found in God's creation. 
can only be found in God's word. Our purpose in life is to know and love and enjoy and glorify God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, forever. If you're wrestling with this, I want to give you some Bible verses for you to go and, and read and, and think about this week, okay? And if you don't have anything to write these down with, you can see me afterwards, and I'm happy to give you this list again. I'll read them and then repeat them once. Here's some things to look at. Mark 12, 28 through 34. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Colossians 3.17, Psalm 73.25-28, Psalm 16.11. Here they are one more time. Mark 12, 28-34, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Colossians 3.17, Psalm 73.25-28, and Psalm 1611. Again, I'll give you that list again after uh, the service is over if you need it. In this psalm, in Psalm 19, where we're at, David gives six descriptions for God's word in verses 7 through 9 and then describes how it benefits the one who reads it and believes it. Here's description number one, right? Uh, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. It's without flaw. It's completely free of corruption. Sin has a corrupting effect on creation. But sin has no effect on God's word. No effect on God's word. As a result, the instruction of the Lord renews the life of the person who reads it and believes it. Description number two, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. Again, all these things that Paul, uh, David is saying, these are description of God's word. The instruction, the testimony. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. That means there's no deceit in it. There's nothing false in God's word because there is no deceit and nothing false in God. As a result, the testimony of the Lord gives wisdom to the person who is inexperienced and yet willing to read it and believe what it says. Description number three, the precepts of the Lord are right. God's word defines and reveals what is good, what is righteous, what is just. And as a result, the precepts of the Lord bring joy to the heart of the person who reads them and believes them. Description number four, the command of the Lord is radiant. You ever looked at a diamond? You just turned it? Watch how the light reflects off of it. God's word shines with purity from every angle. And as a result, the command of the Lord is attractive, draws you in, brings enlightenment to the person who reads it and believes it. Description number five, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. God's word is referred to as the fear of the Lord here, not because uh, it wants you to be terrified of God, although there is a healthy fear of, of the Lord. And the author of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he's talking about those who don't believe in God. And yet this is called the fear of the Lord because the whole counsel of scripture teaches us to draw near to this God in reverence, in awe. It reveals the worthiness of God to be revered and our need to revere him. And as a result, the person who reads the fear of the Lord and believes it will worship God in proper reverence and awe forever. Description number six. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. God's word is dependable. It's reliable. Why? Because it's true. It's true. And as a result, the ordinances of the Lord enable the person who reads them and believes them then to walk in truth. 
In verse 10, David compares scripture, the scriptures to the created things. Did you notice this? Now, we, we need to understand, like, we're not dogging creation here. We're not just, like, throwing it out, dismissing it. Creation is helpful. It actually shows us that there is a God, right? But again, it's not, it's not enough. It's not enough. He compares the scriptures to the created things. He says, the scriptures are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. These things are glorious, but they, they are not glorious in and of themselves. They reflect a greater glory, right? When it comes to delight, God's word is more desirable, David says, than the greatest riches, and it's more pleasing than the finest delicacies. God's word satisfies our souls in a way that is unmatched by anything in creation. Why? Because God's word enables us to know God himself. God's creation points us to the reality of his existence, but only God's word leads us to a relationship with him, and it does so by pointing to the reality of our sin and our need to be reconciled to this God who created us. God's word reveals the weight of our sin. And listen, we can't even count the blue whales and African elephants that it would take to compare that to. The word of God tells us that our sin is so crushing of a burden that we cannot get out from under it. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, God's creation leaves us without excuse, but only God's word provides us with the solution to our problem. And it does so by pointing us to Jesus Christ. You see, he is the word made flesh, the living word of God. He is the creator God who added human nature to his divine nature. And he entered his creation in order to live a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. The only one that God could look down on the earth and, and look for, for someone who was good, the only one that could land on is Jesus. He lived that perfectly righteous life on our behalf and he came to take our sin upon himself, to die on the cross in our place, to rise from the dead, giving proof that his payment was actually enough to get us out from under that crushing burden of sin and set us free in triumph, in eternal life over death and the devil once and for all. See, this glorious gospel reality in God's word then calls for words of our own. And that brings us to the final part of this psalm. We've looked at the general revelation of creation and the specific revelation of scripture, and now we need to see the necessary response of humanity. Look at verse 12 through 14. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In this psalm, we see the thought process that David goes through here. He starts by meditating on creation, and then he moves to dwelling on God's word, because, uh, which causes David then to look at his own sinfulness, right? He said, by your word, by, by your, your precepts, man is warned by them. Or your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there's abundant reward, right? 
He moves from, from meditating on creation to dwelling on God's word, which then causes him to look at his own sinfulness. He heeds the warning. And then he ends here with confession and petition to the Lord. He knows that God is the only hope. Why? Because he knows God. Like David, we can follow in the same thought process in our own hearts. As God reveals himself to us through his creation, we learn something about his eternal power, his divine nature, and we recognize our finiteness. You ever gone and just stood up and stood and looked up in the night sky? Anybody been to the Grand Canyon? The edge of the world, the ocean? Things that make us feel small recognize our limitations. Think about the facts that I just gave about the clouds and the sun, things that we see every day. God reveals himself to us through his scripture and we become aware of his holiness and our sinfulness. It's not enough to know that he's powerful and we're finite. We need to know that he's holy and we're not. We become more aware of our need for his forgiveness. And so how do we respond to that? Well, we follow David's example in verses 12 through 14. We humble ourselves and we ask God for it. Verse 12, who, who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. So we ask God to forgive us of the sins that we can't remember and the ones that, that we committed without even realizing that we did it. In the same way that nothing on earth is hidden from the heat of the, of the sun, Nothing in your heart, nothing in my heart is hidden from the eyes of God. He perceives our unintentional sins and our hidden faults. He knows that we need forgiveness and, and he knows what we need forgiveness for even when it's completely oblivious to us. And so we can pray like David, Lord, you know. Like one thing we can agree on with God is that we've sinned against him. Right? We can ask him to forgive us and make us clean. 1 John 1, John tells us if you claim to be without sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're lying. The truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Verse 13 here, David says, Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. God, help me. Forgive me for the things I, I don't even know about and forgive me for the things that I clearly know about. Ask God to help guard your heart against deliberate disobedience to him. David's prayer in verse 13 is similar to what Jesus tells the disciples to pray in Matthew six thirteen: Lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil, right? And what the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, one verses, uh, verse 133, make my steps steady through your promise. Don't let any sin dominate me. These are prayers that we can pray to our Lord. When we repeatedly disobey God, we've become slaves to sin. We're dominated by it. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Don't let it dominate you. And do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, how are we alive from the dead? It's only in Jesus Christ, right? Offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves as God, to God as weapons for righteousness. He says, for sin will not rule over you. This is a promise. 
Sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then should we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Like there's plenty of grace. Should we just keep going? Paul says, absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to that one you obey? So it's either sin leading to death or it's obedience leading to righteousness. If you keep on sinning, you continue to be a slave to sin. This is what Paul's telling us. But he says, thank God, although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching the word to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Now, let me state clearly here that it's not our obedience that sets us free from slavery to sin. It's not what Paul's saying. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. This side of heaven will never be completely sinless. We feel that, right? So we need to live continually under the grace that we've been freely given in Jesus Christ. But it's that grace that we've been given that enables us to sin less, right? And to actually live blameless in God's sight, like David mentions here in verse 13, until Christ himself completes this work of grace in us. Now, being blameless doesn't mean being perfect. It means not continuing in guilt When we sin, we don't try to hide it. We don't continue willfully in it. We don't go on blatantly rebelling against God and continuing in enslavement to the sin. We confess it instead. We we repent of it. We turn from it. We, We turn away from that and turn toward God with our affection. Obedience from the heart is what Paul's saying. We receive God's forgiveness and we move on in grace filled obedience. To him, And we do this for the rest of our lives here on earth because we who are in Christ have been set free, as Paul said. You've been set free from it. You're no longer slaves to sin. Why? Because you are slaves to righteousness. So are you a slave to sin this morning or are you a slave to righteousness? Are you ruled by your willful sins or are you ruled by God's grace in Jesus Christ? Is David's prayer here your prayer? Are you trying to hide your guilt and continue in blatant rebellion against God? We all need to know this, that our sin cannot, we cannot hide our sin from God. Hebrews 4 tells us that God's word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart and that no creature is hidden from God, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is why the author of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the same author of Hebrews tells us about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We can actually draw near to this God. We need to know that our sin is not hidden from him, but we also need to know that God himself has promised in his word that he will never cast anyone out who comes to him in faith and repentance. It's a glorious promise. Jesus himself made that promise in John chapter six. So why not then confess your sin to Jesus this morning? Why not then turn away from willful rebellion and turn to the one who is willing and faithful to forgive all your sins and cleanse all your guilt? For those of us who continue to walk in this grace 
of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. David's prayer in verse 14 is one that we ought to pray regularly as well. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That word acceptable in the Hebrew gives this connotation of a sacrifice that's pleasing to God, pure and spotless, it's blameless. And the word meditations here isn't referring to an emptying of the mind or to just quiet reflections. Hebrew meditation is, it involves reciting God's word aloud and pondering it. So David is saying, let my words in my words. The words of my mouth and the words that come out of my heart, let those be pleasing to you. Let those be acceptable to you. You know how that's done? When our words are God's words. David's prayer is that he might glorify God as God's word fills his mouth and his heart. This helps us then as we think about sharing the gospel with others, doesn't it? We're not, we're not giving them some sort of Christian sales pitch. We don't have a canned presentation from rote memory. We're declaring the glories of our creator and our redeemer and as his word comes out of our mouths, because it's changing our hearts from the storehouses of our hearts. Verse 14 is a good summary of the entire psalm. With the words of his mouth, David wants to join in with creation in pouring out speech that declares the glory of God to the world. It's a good way to spend your life, isn't it? But while God's creation points everyone to the existence of God, God's word points everyone to the heart of God. We get to see God's heart. And so David desires to line up his own heart with God's heart. There's a reason why he was called a man after God's heart. Because he loved God's word. And he knew he needed it. As God transforms our hearts by his word through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he enables us by his Holy Spirit who dwells in us to glorify him in ways that the heavens are unable to do. Think about that. You go out and you stare at the sky and look at the stars and the meteors and all those things and you feel insignificant. Guess what you get to do that they don't? Use words to glorify not just the creator, but the redeemer, the Lord himself. We proclaim the praises of our Savior and we take the message of the gospel out to the ends of the world so that those who've been left without excuse by the testimony of creation can be shown the way of salvation through the testimony of Scripture. See, the skies can only reveal so much. If we really want to know God, then we really need God's Word. We value God's Word here at Redeemer because we cannot know God without it. Not completely, not the way we need to. I love the very last line of this psalm. This is one of my favorite things about this whole thing. David calls God three things in this last line. Did you catch them? Lord, rock, and redeemer. Lord, rock, and redeemer. Rock is a, is a reference to the revelation of God through creation. Why can David call God his rock? Because he sees what rocks are in creation, right? Redeemer is a reference to the revelation of God through scripture. Why can David call him redeemer? Because scripture shows him to be a redeeming God. And he called him Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps. 
God's personal name. You see, David had an intimate relationship with God. He didn't just call God rock and redeemer. He called God my rock and my redeemer. David didn't just know that God exists. He knew this God by name. Is God your rock? Is God your redeemer? He's proven his existence and his power through his creation, and he's proven his redeeming grace through his word. Do you value his word? Do you see your need for it? Will you settle for L? Will you settle for a generic God? Or will you seek to know his name? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're so thankful for Jesus Christ, whom we would not know unless you have made him known through your word. We thank you for the testimony of creation. We thank you for the testimony of scripture. And we thank you most of all for your son who's come and made himself a sacrifice in our place, giving us eternal life when we deserve death, condemnation. We get grace instead. And that grace is not just a thing, it's a person. And his name is Yahweh, Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for your word and we pray that you would use it to lead and guide this church from here until this Yahweh, our Lord Jesus Christ, comes. We pray this in his name. Amen.